Happy Lord's Day to you. We are grateful to be able to have the Word of God, which is eternally useful to us, especially in a time like this. The worship guide that we sent out to you this week will be much the same as it was last week with one addition. We have also included some resources. Uh, if you would like to lead your children in a Sunday school lesson that they would have been learning in our children's church uh, portion of ministry. So that is there for you to use if you like. Don't feel compelled to use every single thing that we put on there, but we did want to get you a variety of things that, um, that you could use as you pursue the Lord God in your homes uh, until we are allowed to, to meet again. No word yet on whether or not Easter services will be able to happen, although I've been cautioned to not expect to be able to assemble by the uh, representative I've been talking to who's giving uh, instruction to churches on these things. Uh, but we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 again today. This is part three of a four-part approach to Ecclesiastes 10. We're approaching the content of this chapter thematically rather than working through the verses chronologically or in order. This week, chapter 10 will provide wisdom to us regarding labor, our attitudes towards labor, and the pitfalls of foolishness that can corrupt our view of labor. I hope that you see the irony of me preaching about work in a time when many people don't have the luxury or the freedom of going to work. The quarantine that we are experiencing right now means that unless the state deems your labor essential, then they take a backseat to the public health and well-being. But perhaps this is the perfect time to reflect on a facet of life that we often complete in robotic fashion, almost on autopilot, without reflecting much upon it, without considering the ways that our labor can be glorifying to the Lord. So remember the words of Colossians 3 as we enter into this time of meditation upon our efforts and our labor in life. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done, and there is no partiality. So we will be seeking wisdom in regard to our work this morning because our work is important to the Lord just as every aspect of our life is important to our Lord. There is in this text, I believe, a, a pretty natural three-part progression to this chapter's wisdom regarding labor, uh, the second of which will take up the bulk of our time today, uh, but the framework will go as follows. We're going to look at verses 8 through 9 to start with. This is going to address the, the cost of doing business. In other words, labor comes with its consequences. The second thing we will look at is verses 10 through 11, verse 15, and verse 18. And these verses apply wisdom to our labor in a very practical way. And then verse 19, we will close out today looking at this, which describes the blessings of labor and how labor can be fruitful in life. So let's take a moment and pray and thank the Lord God for our time together and ask Him to settle our hearts and minds on Him, uh, that He might be glorified in the preaching of the Word and the receiving of the Word by His people. Let's bow together. Lord God, we are coming together today because we are grateful, grateful for what You have done for us, and we want to respond to Your salvation with worship to You, Lord God, with obedience to You and with respect and reverence to the mode by which you have revealed yourself to us, your holy word. And so I pray, God, that the things that Solomon, King Solomon, has written for us in chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes would be a blessing 
to our hearts and to our minds today and that that blessing might extend out to our hands as we seek to work hard in ways that would glorify you. Father, we are well aware that your gospel teaches plainly that we are not your children by our works. Father, nothing that we could do could absolve us of the sins that we have committed against you. We have rightfully earned judgment by our failure to comply with your law and by the utter disrespect we have shown you in walking our own ways and instead of your perfect way. But we also are aware, Lord God, of the power of grace and that by love you have redeemed us. By your important work, you have made us new. And so, God, as we think about what little effort we can do to bless the kingdom of heaven and to be in compliance to your word, God, I pray that we would not be mistaken in thinking that our identity is wrapped up in what we produce, Lord God. Our identity was won for us at Calvary. Keep that in our hearts and minds today as we study together. We love you and we long to be together as your church. But in the meantime, thank you for this medium, which is allowing us to be able to participate in a study uh, as your church. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's begin with verses 8 through 9. This is the cost of doing business. I will read it out for you and then we will discuss it. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. In these two verses, Solomon gives us four activities, each of which concerns certain potential hazards. Digging a pit, breaking through a wall, quarrying stones, and splitting logs. Now the two activities that are described in verse 8 may sound like ordinary laboring activities, but in biblical context they carry a stronger moral meaning. The digging of a pit was often seen as an act of covert violence against an adversary. Throughout the Old Testament, we see evidence of this. I'm going to bring up two. There are more examples listed on your note sheet if you'd like to look into it more on your own. Psalm 7, verses 14 through 16 says this, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull, violence descends. And so we see here a picture of one who is scheming to do evil to another, and yet justice is done in that person's life when they fall into the very trap that they have set for their adversary. Scripture often associates this behavior, this digging of a pit, with the wicked. And the plea of one who serves the Lord then is that justice will cause the wicked man's scheme to backfire and do them harm. Psalm 9, 15 through 16 is another example of this. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. In the net that they have hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. In our worship guide today, we have included materials we would have been teaching to the kids in Sunday school. And if we had the privilege of meeting together in purpose, they would have been learning about Queen Esther today. Esther was a, a beautiful Hebrew woman who was chosen as a wife to a secular king during the time of captivity under the Persian Empire. 
There was a prejudice among some in the government at that time against the people of God. And a man who is named Haman is working to have the Israelites uniformly wiped out in Persia. The thrust of the story is that this young Hebrew woman, Esther, who was in a protected position of honor, is urged by her older cousin, a man named Mordecai, who was faithful, a man who had raised her in the absence of her parents. She is urged by Mordecai to put all of her own safety on the line, so to speak, for her, per, for her people to intercede for them. Esther's bravery in caring for God's covenant people is instrumental in reversing the fate of the Israelites and saving them from exile, banishment, and even death. Now, the kids' lesson that we have sent out doesn't go on to tell the whole story, at least not this week, it may next week. Haman, the man who wanted to wipe out the Israelites, is bitter. He hears of Mordecai's efforts to thwart his plans. And so Haman, in his arrogance and hatred, commissions the construction of a great tall gallows. Haman envisions retribution upon this Hebrew man Mordecai. He, he wants to hang him publicly so that his shame can be before all. But the sovereignty of God prevails, and justice wins the day. Having been exposed as a manipulator and a liar, wicked Haman is ordered to be hanged on the very gallows that he constructed to hang Mordecai on. He who digs a pit will fall into it. The second image in verse 8 is also to be understood along these moral lines. Breaking through a wall here is not simple demolition in preparation for building improvements. The Hebrew word for wall is gader. It often refers to a wall that surrounds a city or a home for protection. It can also refer to a hedge that keeps someone at a distance from a dwelling for safety and privacy. Now the one who breaks through such a hedge is in harmony with the first half of the verse, one who is up to no good. May justice come upon that one in such a way that they end up getting bit by a venomous snake that was hiding in the very hedge that would have done them no harm if they had just heeded the warning and stayed back. But because of their wickedness and their desire to break through and do uh, malicious deeds, they are bitten by this viper and their wickedness does them harm. Solomon, in fact, uh, is going to refer to snakes again later in this discourse on labor, snakes being an almost universal sign of wickedness among the people. So verse 8 addresses how moral compromises bring practical consequences. As Solomon transitions to verse 9, he is emphasizing in some ways the vanity of the fallen world, that even actions that are not of a primarily moral nature still have potential natural consequences that come along with them. Striving after righteousness doesn't exempt us from these natural consequences. And so we must prepare ourselves to encounter them. All labor comes with risk. We need to be aware of the difficulties that may become us when we take up certain laborious tasks. Now I typed my sermon this week with tender fingers because being stuck at home... Uh, mitigated me to do a little bit of repairs around the house. Something I've been putting off for a while is the great storm of 019, which blew down part of my back fence. That fence has been kind of 
temporarily propped up, but my dog started to escape from it pretty regularly, so I figured I better put my tools on and go outside and actually get to rebuilding that fence. Swinging a hammer, singing, uh, slinging a saw, and using a screw gun, these are somewhat hazardous activities. And my hands are telling the story this week as a result, as I have several cuts and abrasions and some, some open, uh, open blisters that uh, have come from trying to lug all the wood around in my backyard. Likewise, quarrying stones comes with risks. The weight of the materials is great. If you drop one of those stones on your foot or it falls on you from above, it could do you great damage. If you're cutting those stones out, it could cause chips to fly up and get you in the eye or cause an abrasion on your skin. If you carry stones around much, you know how backbreaking work that is. Splitting logs, likewise, is hazardous in its own ways. Splinters are a risk. Your tools can break. Someone who's ever broken an axe knows how hazardous that can be. You can get blisters from swinging that tool over and over again. Being a person who pursues righteousness does not exempt you from the pitfalls of labor. Much in the same way that going after wickedness will result in certain consequences, so too will engaging in physical labor potentially carry consequences of its own. Not only should wisdom help us to prepare ourselves for these likely hazards, I would have been well-versed to wear gloves or eye protection. I should have lifted with my legs instead of my back this week as I was working on my fence. These are precautions we can take knowing that hazards come with laborious work. But it should also impact our attitude towards work itself. When inevitably something does go wrong and we are hurt by the labor that we are trying to accomplish, we should see that coming. We should expect it. How has living in a litigation age in America affected our views of what we should expect when it comes to our labors? The good side of all the government regulation that we see when it comes to hard work is that unions and certain laws have protected the vulnerable. Child labor laws prevent little ones from being pushed into factories, and we see that happening in other countries. There are more opportunities for those who might otherwise be discriminated against, and we can't argue that those are good things. Without a doubt, many have been protected by the laws that prevent people from taking advantage of one another, particularly those who are weak and unrepresented. But then reconsider the ways that our entitlement has caused us to have an unrealistic view of the hardships that we will endure as a result of, all, of the fall that we have, have made with our sins. Rather than having a realistic view of our labor, people today are conditioned to immediately blame their employer or seek compensation as if the risk of doing their jobs should solely be on the person who owns the company. Now, don't get me wrong in this. I know there are many people in the audience today who are listening to this sermon who've had legitimate claims against their companies, and I'm not trying to, to undermine that. There are legitimate workers' comps claims where there's a negligence on the, work, on the part of the employer, where proper equipment was not provided, too many hours were demanded of the employee, people were forced to work outside of their training. That, that's on the leadership. But there are other times when we need to simply acknowledge that some work is just dangerous. And we're foolish to pretend like we didn't know that going in. It may be beneficial to take a look at 
Luke 17, which is not exactly about the labors we're talking about today, but it is about servanthood. And servants were often required to do quite a bit of labor in their days. The word of the Lord says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at the table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now the thrust of that passage in Luke is more about appreciation. But there can be a false sense of entitlement in those regards as well, where we feel that someone should always be patting us on the back for the work that we do, or giving us kudos and praise, when in reality, we live in a state of constant grace. The God that we serve is blessing us with life, life that we don't deserve, life that we have not earned, and favor that really should be stripped away from us due to our sin. The curse that resulted from Adam's sin did not make labor itself bad, but it made it harder. Wisdom is beneficial, but it will not take all the striving out of labor because labor is dangerous as a consequence of the fall. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, after Adam and Eve has sinned in the garden, God has already levied a curse upon the serpent for his deceptive ways. He's levied a curse upon the woman uh, that her childbearing will be more difficult and that her heart will strive after her husband. And here in addressing Adam, he says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it where you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Remember, there was labor before the fall. God labored six days in making the creation. So labor itself is not a consequence of sin. But because of our fall, we can no longer enjoy labor to the extent that we could have before sin entered into existence. Sin brought with it death. And death brings a degree of suffering to all of us. And so these consequences of quarrying stones and splitting logs are deserved because we have disregarded the instruction of our God. Death is here because we did not listen. And Adam is not the only sinner. Every one of us has since followed in the pattern of his life. Not only did we inherit sin, but we also realized that sin in the way that we disregard God's law. So friends, when you work with glass, you're going to get a cut eventually. When you work with fire, you will eventually have to deal with the negative consequences of a burn. Don't let unrealistic expectations keep you from being prepared. And know that when the hardships of your profession befall you, it's part of the territory. The principle of preparedness has ramifications beyond labor, of course. Is it unreasonable if you have small children 
to think that they will at various times say ridiculous things and cause disproportionate amounts of noise in your home and make decisions that are questionable in wisdom? They're children. That is how they will behave. And one of our sweetest labors, friends, is the stewardship that God gives to us when we are allowed to raise one of his little ones. We should be prepared for the hardships and the patience that it requires. We should not be so quick to yell at our children and to express exasperation towards them for simply being young. Let us be aware. Let us prepare ourselves for these things. Should we not account for that as we approach the calling of parenthood, appealing to God for patience, asking Him to help us to tackle the challenges that come with parenthood with grace and with a teaching heart? Is it unreasonable, church, to think that those whom we love the most being mortal will one day grow old and will one day pass away from this world? Isn't it wise to prepare ourselves for the perils of mortal life, humbly acknowledging that death is something that we have little or no control over, as Solomon has taught us again and again throughout this book, and that even if we are accustomed to death only afflicting the elderly, that there are times when that happens out of order, that we might very well see one of our own children precede us into death, that we might have to say goodbye to a a peer even though they seem far, far earlier than the, the, the days when we decline. Is it unreasonable if you are a sinful person in a world that is groaning under the weight of sin, in a creation that is infected in in every way by what Adam has done and we have all done in succession? Is it unreasonable that at times society will have to contend with widespread epidemics that disrupt the natural flow of life and can bring a degree of suffering and hardship among us? Should we not be prepared for these kinds of things? As I watch the response to the coronavirus unfold in the media, I see many rallying around this attitude of, we will pull together. We will beat this virus. We will do whatever it takes to keep this thing from taking anything from us. But do we leave room, friends, for the sober-minded consideration that perhaps We are supposed to suffer a bit through this because we live in a fallen world and because we contribute to its ugliness with our own sin. Do we take the time to stop shaking our fist to really consider the fact that God has every right to bring sickness and depravity upon us if He so wills it, but it is because of His amazing, abundant grace towards sinners and towards the saved that he allows this world to continue on with a degree of functionality and peace? Do we stop to think of what a graceful God we serve, that he does not cut short the life of the rebel from the outset, that the sum total of life in the fall is not constant suffering and pain and hardship? If God has opened our eyes, then we have been made aware of the fact that we are but unworthy servants, as Luke 17 says. It is only by the undeserved love of a mighty God that we experience relief at all in this lifetime. If we listen to Solomon, we will learn to brace ourselves for the difficult times that come. We are to reject wickedness outright so that its consequences will not befall us. 
We are to know that wickedness has infected our world so that we will be subject to its effects. Prepare ourselves for it and ready our hearts for that hard t- those hard times when they come. Though there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is still affliction for those who dwell on a fallen earth. So that is our first, first tenor of this, this passage, is that we need to be ready for these kind of hardships to come. There is a cost for labor. The second section of our sermon today is going to deal with the wisdom that Solomon shares with us regarding how we can labor in wise ways. And this is going to cover various verses scattered throughout the chapter. Let us engage our labor with a mind that is committed to the wisdom revealed to us by our God. And to that end, Solomon has more to tell us. Wisdom is not only relevant in a classroom, it is relevant in the workplace as well. When we are infected by folly, we will find our labors to be much more difficult. As we see how to apply wisdom to our work, we will consider a selection of Proverbs scattered throughout this chapter that direct us towards the truth. Starting with Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 10. Here Solomon tells us, If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. In other words, what we learn here from Solomon is that it is good for us to work smarter, not just harder. I'm sure you can picture this scenario in your mind. Most of us will not find ourselves wielding an axe too often, but if we do, the sharpness of the blade will have a profound impact on the efficiency of the tool. How many times have you compromised and done something the wrong way because you were in too much of a hurry to do it the right way and your haste ended up making the chore take twice as long? I'm I'm a bit of a cheapskate. And sometimes when I'm working on a project in the garage and I need to sand the paint off of it, I'll use the same piece of sandpaper until it goes from being 80 grit to being 8 grit. There's literally 8 pieces of grit left on that that whole sheet of paper. I just keep sanding with it again and again and again, not realizing that I'm wasting my time in doing so. A new sheet of paper would be worth using so that my labor doesn't have to be so involved. We're liable to make a job harder by using the wrong tool because it's the one that's with us and it would be a hassle to go all the way back to the garage to get the right one. When I was uh, a teenager, I was trying to learn about uh, molecular biology and we were trying to put together scale models of cells. It was one of the assignments that we had to partake of. I enjoyed it because I got to be a little creative in that. It wasn't just book work. So I'm trying to make a a 3D model of a cell, and I figure I'm going to use some clear gelatin, and I'm going to suspend in the gelatin various parts of the cell so you can see them in a a clear fashion. And the the nucleus of my cell was going to be a small racquetball kind of thing. Now, when I put the racquetball into the gelatin mixture before it had solidified, I realized that the racquetball was full of air. And so what did it do? It floated on top, and that doesn't work for a cell model. I needed to somehow make a hole in that ball and fill it up with the gelatin so as I pushed it down, it would suspend itself midway through the mass. Of course, I was in the kitchen doing this, and and I used the first tool that I saw, which happened to be a 10-inch serrated bread knife on the counter. So here is me holding a racquetball with a 10-inch bread knife trying to poke a hole into that ball. 
did you know that bread knives are actually really good at cutting meat as well? I found that out the hard way as soon as the tip of that knife slipped off the ball and I cut the flap of my skin between my pointer finger and my thumb. We got to see how efficient the emergency room was at our Kaiser Hospital that day. You're tired and you've been working for a long time and so you just push ahead because mentally you don't have the energy to try and find a better way to do things and, and so rather than rest, you carry on. And then the product of your work is hindered by your drowsiness. These are all ways that, that we don't work smart. We just push on and hope that effort will overcome every challenge. Heart and hustle is often the award that everybody thinks highly of, and it's a goal we should aim for. But effort is not the universal solution to every problem. In fact, trying to overcome every problem with brawn is actually quite lazy. It is intellectually lazy because God has given us faculties to think beyond our hardships, to un unravel the mysteries that are yet solved. It may take a little more focus to think carefully about a, our work and to consider ways that we might approach it more efficiently with greater wisdom, but that extra time and planning can save you energy that you might use for more important things. As New Testament believers, we have a great commission to fulfill, church. We are called to share the gospel with the lost world. We are called to raise up our little ones in truth. We are called to preach the gospel even to ourselves so that the word of God would resound and might make a difference in the world. The lives we are living in today's society are undeniably fast-paced and busy. And if we're going to take the word seriously and have an active prayer life, it's going to take time. If we're going to be serious about God's command and pursue Him in the Scripture, it's going to take time. Each day of your life is what we call a zero-sum game. That means there are only 24 hours in the day for you to work with. And all of your affections, all of your interests are trying to vie for part of that 24-hour pie. If you waste those 24 hours working foolishly with bad preparation and lack of follow-through without a reflective wisdom that makes your efforts ever more increasingly efficient, then you're going to have less time to do important things. Things like pursuing the Lord. Things like loving your God and loving your neighbor. And what is success here in the end of verse 10? True success for the believer is living our lives in such a way that we are honoring God. Paul says that the true success he strives for, the, the crown that he runs his race for, is the upward call in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so to attain that, to, to be nearer to our Lord, we must be wise with the way that we spend our time. And that, of course, flows into the way that we labor. Let us labor smarter instead of just laboring harder. Take time to consider the efficiencies of your work. Be observant of others who are doing the same job but happen to be doing it better. What advantages have they given themselves? Are they simply more talented? Sometimes that's the case. But the odds are that they have learned to sharpen their axe so that they don't have to put out quite the effort and the strain that you do. Learn from them. Work smarter. 
Our next verse is Ecclesiastes 10.11. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Now here's our serpent again. This is twice now that we've, we've heard about a serpent in some shape or form in this chapter. And this is an extremely strange proverb and perhaps one of the most difficult in this chapter to understand, if not the book. Is snake charming even real? Is it something we should labor towards? The imagery is undeniably strange, but it likely ties in with the warnings that wickedness will turn back to bite the one who believes he has it under control. The serpent here could be in reference to the warnings that follow directly after this passage, verses that we studied last week as we looked at wisdom concerning our speech. Verses 12 through 14 talk about how a fool uses his words and how a wise man should seek to do otherwise. And if this is the case, if this verse is connected to what follows, then the tongue would be compared here to a viper that needs to be charmed. This would make sense, especially in light of James 3's insistence that taming, or you, you might say charming the tongue, is a nearly impossible exercise. That if a person can tame the tongue, then he's a perfect man. And so if we lay that concept over verse 10, we would see that we must act quickly before wicked words spring out of our mouths. Friends, there is such a thing as instant regret. And I, I doubt that I'm the only one here who has felt that. Times when no sooner do the sounds escape your mouth than you are instantly wishing you could push the delete button and start over and say less next time. Or say what you wanted to say better, more efficiently, more accurately. Or say it in a more winsome and loving and gentle way as we spoke about last week. But once a fool's words have been released, it's too late. The viper has already struck. And so in some ways, this verse is speaking about readiness and timeliness. That we must be careful not to speak too quickly but that we should make sure that our thoughts and our heart is under control before we expound upon the ways that we feel and the opinions that we have in our minds. So what does this have to do with labor? Taming the tongue is hard work. And it is a work that must be done in a timely manner. So this proverb might be best paired with verse 18, which we will look at next. It handles a very similar foolish behavior that can negatively impact our, our labor. Ecclesiastes 10.18 Through sloth, the roof sinks in. And through indolence, the house leaks. Verse 18, and I think also verse 11, are speaking of the perils of procrastination, of putting off for too long what needs to be done now. If something is worth doing, church, why is it that we so often put it off for a different time? If I'm not willing to do something now when I have the time and the resources, what makes me think I will do it later when I am very likely to be pressed on other sides with other responsibilities and when my supplies might very well be divided towards other pursuits? The quarantine mandates that we have had to live under have interrupted the lives of us all. Some, such as those in the medical profession, are busier than they have ever been because they are putting in long hours, 
trying to meet the demands of those who are struggling with this illness or who are afraid they may have it. But most of us are probably experiencing not only an abundance of free time, but a much more limited palette of options on which we might spend that precious time. The zero-sum game has shifted in the quarantine. Now let me ask you a question, friends. How many of you, at some point in your saved life, have acknowledged within the last year, perhaps, that you really ought to be spending more time studying God's Word? How many of you have admitted to the Lord, even, that you need to make more time to spend with Him in prayer and reflection, speaking with Him and telling Him what's on your heart, telling Him the things that you love about Him and the, and the things that He has done for you, acknowledging what He has revealed. How many of you have, have acknowledged that yourselves? I, I hope all of us could say, yeah, I, I want to be in the Word more. I want to pray to the Lord more. I want to have a stronger spiritual life. Now here's the follow-up question. Now that God has given you that time, like it or not, now that God has limited the distractions that might fight for your time and attention, are you actually doing it? Are you reading your Bible more? Have your knees hit the floor more since you've had time in your house to contemplate the things of God? Are you actually doing what you say you want to do? Because if you're not doing it now, if you are not pursuing the Lord when you have very few options, what makes you think you're going to try to do it later on when life gets back to normal and many of the responsibilities that are not on your shoulders right now are heaped back upon you? Are you content to have an unending procession of excuses that will justify your neglect of the Lord and keep putting Him off until later? Or are you going to sit here today and hear the word of the Lord? which reminds you that the roof is going to come down if you don't fix it. That the leak is only going to get worse. We apply that to our pursuit of the Lord. You must seek Him now. You cannot just keep putting that off to a later, more calm period of your life. And I sincerely believe that this time of, of serious threat of infection from this disease, whether it realizes itself in great devastation to our nation or not, you have time to sit still and be with the Lord God and pursue Him. Procrastination is a poison to our devotional lives and it is a detriment to our productivity when it comes to our labors as well. What needs to be done so often is set to the side for the sake of something that doesn't even matter. And when we practice that kind of off-putting, it flows out of our innate sin nature that wants to constantly put off God that wants to constantly say, I'll decide for myself how I spend my time, Lord. Thank you very much for your suggestions, but I'm going to live my life the way I want to live. Friends, the book, the book that you hold in your lap right now is not a book of suggestions. It is a book of truth. It is a book of proposition. It is a book of instruction and commandment. We put ourselves in peril if we shrug it off and put it, put it away for a different day. The second half of verse 18 adds to our understanding because procrastination has a close ally. Indolence. Indolence is just a poetic way of saying lazy. 
I'm not putting it off. I'm just not going to do it. I'm just, I'm just going to do whatever I can instead of it. We learn to do evil, friends, by doing nothing because evil is inherent in our nature. Idleness, what many call the blessing of civilized society, too often makes man worthless rather than creative. Keeping ourselves busy with worthwhile things will lessen the tempter's ability to sneak up on us and to cause us to be living our lives in a worthless manner. It is true that God desires rest for His people. But is true rest really sitting around doing nothing? No. Rather, it is finding refreshment in doing the right things. The pattern of creation is to be followed, friends. Work hard for six days. Rest on the seventh. But the Sabbath was not intended to be Netflix day. It is a time when toilsome work is to be exchanged for fulfilling, life-giving work of pursuing the Lord and honoring Him. Psalm 46 tells us to be still and to know that I am God. This is God speaking to man. And we should be still. And we should know that He is God. But when we begin to understand that He is God, we will know that He is holy that He is worthy of honor and praise and glory, and that we cannot just sit still forever. We must use what He has given to us to glorify Him, to praise Him and to exalt Him. You will not be able to remain still forever, for you will learn that the God you formerly rebelled against is a God who made you for a purpose. I was... I must be moving along... Um, I know you have important places to go. What's that? You're quarantined? You don't have anywhere to go? I guess I'll just keep preaching then. Uh, Ecclesiastes 10.15 The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. This is kind of a light-hearted proverb. If you are directionally challenged, this proverb might make you squirm. Some of you could get lost if I put you on an escalator. But this is really about more than your sense of direction. It is about your sense of awareness. Unawareness multiplies the toils of our labor. Life gets proportionately harder when we don't pay attention to what is going on around us. When it talks about a person not knowing their way back into the city, they're talking about the very city that person lives in. That's absolutely simple. They should know how to get back to their own home, especially in a day that was written when there weren't a, a vast networks of roads and, and, and ways in and out of cities. There were few thoroughfares that would get you into and out of the popular places. And so any person who's paying half an ounce of attention should know how to get back into the city that they live. There are things that we should know even without the slightest attention paid to our environment. The fool doesn't bother, though. And eventually it bites him. Christians, this is true of those who say they call on the name of the Lord and yet they have very little knowledge of the word by which he has made himself known. And of the gospel that has the power to save them. If you have been negligent in this regard, if you are a believer and you have followed him for years, but there are only four or five verses that you can even quote from memory, have you been paying attention to the Lord God? Have you given Him your attention and affection? 
Have you meditated on his word? Let the Holy Spirit prick your conscience today if you don't know the way back to the city of Zion. If you've just been floating along with the current of Christianity and you haven't engaged in knowing your God and knowing the gospel by which you've been saved, start there if that is the case. Let the Holy Spirit urge you on today to be one who can at the very least go to the scripture without much thinking about it. Go to the scripture that has the verses that talk about the gospel. Be able to explain that gospel in detail from God's word to somebody who has questions about it. This is the gospel that has transformed you and made you new, isn't it? Then make the time to know it inside out and backwards. Pay close attention to this gospel which has made you new, which should be your everything. You can pay attention to a ton of things in life that don't warrant your attention, that are a waste of your energy and your time and you'll still fall into folly. In chapter 12, Solomon warns us about the one who studies too much and only manages to weary himself by his time in his books. He strains to see the forest, but misses the trees. He gets lost on even the straightest path to the city because he's always thinking too much, but he's thinking about the wrong things. So ignoring the gospel and ignoring the truth isn't okay if you're pursuing other things intelligent endeavors. Forsaking what is eternal for what is temporary is not justifiable, friends. So be aware that Zion is your home. Be aware that you belong in a place other than this earth and set your mind and your heart on heavenly things. 2 Timothy 3.7 describes the fool who is always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. May that not describe his people in his church. Ephesians 2.10 reminds us that God has called us not only to be his workmanship, but to work for him. We know very well that we are not saved by our efforts, church, that no amount of penance or charity or good deeds can earn us away from the punishment we earned by our sin. But neither does he save us into idleness. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is not just wisdom for a pastor, by the way, for the deacon, for the paid worker at church. It is wisdom for all who would bear good fruit to the glory of our awesome God. Be aware Learn along the way of the Christian life and be ready to apply what you learned. To conclude this morning, as we move to our third section, we have one last verse here to examine from chapter 10. It's verse 19. Bread is made for laughter, says Solomon, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Now, verse 19 doesn't really give us wisdom to labor better. Rather, it reminds us of the blessings that can flow out of wise labor. 
Though we must be careful not to take this verse too literally. Money is useful for any number of categories of things in life. But Solomon does not suggest here that money is the universal answer to every problem we encounter here under the sun. That's not what he is saying. You could have just ended the book if that was the case. But he goes on to again and again and again point to a greater answer beyond the sun. So don't make the mistake of thinking this verse justifies materialism. Don't think that it justifies workaholism where we are constantly striving for more and more to pad our pockets and fatten our bank accounts. That's not what he's saying. But what is being spoken of here in in Ecclesiastes 10.19 is that there are many benefits to wise labor. God will bless us when we order our days in such a way that we are productive to Him. When all that we do is as worship to the Lord. Labor results in resources. We see here food is, is given to us, bread. But it's not just bread for sustenance. It's bread for what? For laughter. And we see here that not only is bread provided for us, but wine, which is not an essential for life, but this wine gladdens life. And seriousness, church, meditate for a moment on the incredible mercies of our God. We read earlier in Genesis about how God levied a curse upon Adam, and that curse is still upon mankind today. Not only would death be introduced into creation and redemption would therefore be required, a redemption that only God himself could provide, so too would labor now become more laborious and difficult and grinding to the soul of man. But even in this curse, which was rightfully deserved, which God justly gave, even in this curse, look at God's love for his people. God's love cannot help but shine through. Even through these strivings that were levied upon us, God is willing to give us good things. He's willing to provide for us blessings that will improve not only life, but the quality of life and remind us of the generosity of our mighty God. Oh, what mercies are on display to sinners like you and like me when we consider that the destruction we have earned has been delayed that God has issued us punishments that can themselves even yield benefits and more mercies to us if we will only be faithful and aware of God's hand in every aspect of our lives, labor included in that. And so, friends, in light of the mercies of God, let us conclude by considering the most excellent labors of Christ. Did Jesus count the cost of what he was sent to this earth to do? Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Did Jesus understand the limits of effort? In John 14, 6, he proclaims, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one can labor their way to heaven. No one can get past their sins by their exertion. They can only come through the grace that Christ has provided through his work and his sacrifices. Was Jesus in any way late in his labors? Did he procrastinate or put off till later what needed to be done today? Absolutely not. Romans 5, 6. 
For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time. The Lord God is never late. Your prayers, prayers might be unanswered right now, but it's not because God doesn't have the time for them. It is because He has deemed that they are not to be answered now. He will answer them in His timing because He is always, always on time. Was He in any way unaware as He made His way through this world full of sin, this world that He allowed Himself to be incarnated into, as he came and took on the flesh of a human being, and as he strove under the same burdens that we strive under, as he experienced fatigue and hunger and the hardships of circumstances around him, absolutely not. He was not unaware. Hebrews 4.15 proclaims, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with, unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The atoning work of Jesus is the only reason that the work of man can be anything more than vanity, friends. So know that as God has gathered you to his word this morning, it was not just to make you harder workers. It was to remind you of the one good work that can cleanse us from our iniquity and make us pure so that now as redeemed people who have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, who have promise of new life, sealed with the resurrection of Jesus himself, we can now be productive for him. Friends, before you had Christ, you tried to do good things. You might have wanted to be noble and perhaps you did things that were of some benefit to the people around you but they weren't holy and righteous because you ignored the source of holy and right, holiness and righteousness. So friends, we come here today not to just better ourselves, but to exalt the perfect one, our King Jesus. Let us pray to him in conclusion. Mighty God, we thank you for the ways that you draw us near to you and for the ways that you refine us and make us new by the word. We pray, Lord God, that we would examine the way that we spend our time and the kinds of energies we spend on our labors, that we might benefit from the good things that Solomon has declared to us by the power of the Holy Spirit working through him. Father, this inspired word is good for us. It is like a bread that nourishes us, and so I pray that you would make us stronger, Lord. But I pray also that we would see that in our weakness, you are never weak. Our weakness only displays all the more the grandeur of your might and power. Lord, there are times when we will be sick. There are times when we will grow weary. There will be times when we are wasteful. There will be times when we are foolish and unaware. Lord God, carry us and be the wisdom that we need. Give us strength that we might follow after you, Lord God. We place our, our lives in your hands right now. God, please bring an end to this coronavirus threat. Please bring healing to the afflicted. We love you, Lord God, and we are so very grateful for the ways that you provide for your church. Please, even now, as our friends are experiencing this service in their homes, bless these families. Let them know that you are near to them and that the church is not a building, but it is the people. And Father, I pray that in no way, shape, or form will we deem these times apart as sufficient, 
to a degree that we would neglect the gathering of the saints when we are allowed once again to come together, God. But may this time apart only endear us more and more to you and to one another. I pray, God, that we'd be able to gather again soon. But in the meantime, we lift up our voices in all that we do to the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.